Hello, and welcome to the second In The Making podcast with me, Jim Biddulph. Now this one, coupled with my first chat with Rachel Boot, who is a voice artist and audio editor, has already proven to myself that this podcast won't just be about designer makers, which, given my own personal background, is kind of what I conceived it as. But this chat proves that In The Making can be centred around any making practice. And it is with writer... David Whitehouse, also rather originally known as Dave. We talk about the commonality of his name before getting into how he began his career by pursuing and fulfilling a teenage dream of writing for lad mags. Although, as Dave explains, this predated the glossy covers adorned with scantily clad women that many of us, myself included, grew up with. That said... I do know that Dave has many tall tales from various celebrity interviews as well as numerous and bizarre experiences of boots-to-the-ground investigative journalism from the noughties and 2010s in the latter part of this stage of his career. However, we did manage to keep the focus predominantly on his trajectory to becoming an author, including what it's like to be a writer and with it to make books. To date, Dave has written three books of fiction, some of which have won awards, which, along with the role critics play in the world of literature, is something that we discuss. We also talk about last year's About a Son, Dave's first move into non-fiction, which touchingly charts the experience of Colin Heyer and his family following the murder of their son Morgan in Dave's hometown in 2015. It's a bold departure and an incredible book, and it's really something I wanted to discuss with Dave, not least to find out how the making process might have been affected by the content but also the format change. Now, whilst the story is fairly heavy, we do manage to keep the chat pretty light and in places fairly silly. And it's worth noting that, like all of the guests in this first series, Dave is a friend. I think, well, or at least hope, that our pre-established relationship makes for a genuine and interesting conversation. And in this case, it certainly helped, as this is in fact the second conversation we had together, having accidentally not pressed the record button the first time around. Now, I debated whether to share that or not, um, but Dave and I talk about authenticity and being genuine within the chat, so here I am, being authentic. But I still think it makes for a, a fun, interesting and engaging chat. So thanks to Dave for his extra time and extra patience, as well, of course, for his openness and insightful views on the making process when it comes to writing. David Whitehouse. Hello, um, mate. Hello, mate. Um... Thanks for doing this. Um, no worries. We've known each other for for a few years now, but mm. um, in in googling you in preparation for this, I've, I've come to realise that you're you're an exceedingly busy man. You do a, you do a lot of different things. Mm. You're writer, as I know you as, but um, seemingly you are a former archaeologist and director of the Corning Museum of Glass. Yeah, that's quite impressive. Well, there's a few. That's the problem you have. You see, there's a few David Whitehouses. Um, Britain's foremost. Brad Pitt lookalike. Yeah. The BBC's former chief science correspondent and um, primary chronicler of the sun and the moon. Yeah. David Whitehouse. He's written books. And occasionally, when they discover a new kind of celestial body, I get a call from BBC Radio 4 asking me to go on, <laughs> yeah. the, asking me to go on the Today Show, or yeah. whatever it's called, to talk about it. Yeah. Have you um, ever been tempted to do it? I've been very tempted to <laughs> yeah. do it, yeah, but I haven't, haven't done it yet. Well, I mean, you're also busy because you're also uh, the leading Phil Collins tribute act in the UK. That is, that is me. And, and a professional yacht master and member of the Philharmonic Orchestra. I have a very 
common name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and very few skill sets in comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your skill set is writing, and that's what, what I've got you on here to talk about. Um, and I guess, you know, to link it into the theme of the podcast, I think I've come to realise quite quickly that the podcast is, yes, it's about making, but it's it's not necessarily just about the sort of traditional hands-on making that maybe my background sort of is part of. Um, but yeah, I guess it's, I guess we're talking about the making of narrative, the making of books, the making of stories that that you know kind of enter the world and, and people's lives. They're both for me. It's all one and the same thing, really. Regardless of the medium, music, um, you know, wood, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, words, whatever. It's it's the idea that you wake up in the morning with nothing, and at the end of the day, have something, yeah. Um, brings with it the same anxieties and problems and ecstasies that you know no, no matter which of those regards you're working in i think yeah uh, i imagine anyway but then i know nothing about anything else so. <laughs> well i mean i suppose that that sort of quite quickly gets us on to maybe the questioning or the point of or the just the very fact that you know writing is in itself as well as those other things that you listed there really um a kind of art form really i suppose it's, it's a creative process that that like you say involves making in a kind of conjuring sense that is it is more aligned to art in a way right yeah it is an it isn't you know if you want to get lofty it's an art <laughs> it's an art form i'm kind of averse to that kind of thing but you know it stands amongst all those other things painting mm-hmm. um songwriting all those things it is an art um in that you can or you can't do it and the more you do it the better you get at it yeah, yeah. and you're hoping to achieve something that transcends the the form yeah whether or not you get there or not i'd say that what differentiates writing from all of those other things from other making things is that writing is to be a writer is a state of kind of perpetual disappointment (laughs) because you can't you can't um realize what's in your head it's just a it's just a physical impossibility to get to get close to how perfect the sentence or the word or the line or the story is in your head to get it down on the page it's a it's a continual kind of agony yeah and you're you're never you're never capable of getting there and that's why people quit or yeah. go mad yeah or or have fears and anxieties about showing it to other people because it will always sure, yeah it will never be the your, your vision yeah so you're you're continually battling disappointment before it's even occurred <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, me a lot of the time yeah <laughs> sorry one. me and everyone i know one, yeah uh, well i mean it does sound like there's there's quite a good it's quite a good metaphor for life there isn't it that that you yeah, you set out to do one thing, you you have a series of expectations that come with it, and then because you're putting it out there into the world, who knows where that, what's going to happen with that, right? Who, who knows yeah. where it's going to go? And what separates you from the people who don't get it done mm. is that you carry on. Yeah. That's the, only, that's the only thing. If I'm asked for advice about, you know, how do you become a writer or how do you get a book published <laughs> yeah, yeah. or things that you get asked, yeah. the, the only real sound advice is just to carry on. If you're not doing it, you're mm. not doing it if you're not writing things. Mm. Can you say you're a writer? Plenty of people do, <laughs> but, but yeah. ultimately you just got to, you know, put your put your ass on a chair, haven't you? Yeah, get on with it. So, in, I mean, in in that way, it is very much, um, you know, it's a job. You're talking in a very sort of rational, purposeful way there, right? Like it's, in a, I guess, what I mean there is in a non-lofty, non-romanticized kind of way. It's a, it's a job. You 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 write. You get words out. You convey a story of one kind or another. Yeah, I'm against romanticising it, f- firstly because it embarrasses me. <laughs> Off, <laughs> yeah. Often that kind of thing is is the uh, behaviour of people who are 
kind of narcissistic or he put the title above the work. But at the same time, I treat it like a job because it's how I earn, earn money yeah. and yeah, how yeah. I live. And it's, you know, it is that for me. It's a job I enjoy, mm-hmm. but it's still work. I still have to have a work ethic and keep Mm-mm. keep work hours. Um, and, you know, I don't have the luxury of, you know, be sitting on a magic money pipe, which is... <laughs> oh, I wish I had a magic money magic pipe. Magic money pipe, imagine. <laughs> um, so, so it is that for me. It's very much that for me. Yeah. But it's also the only thing I can do. You know, mm. so I've tried working in office. Have no choice. Yeah, I don't have a choice. I've tried working in office. Didn't end well. I've got no other real skills, yeah, attributes, or even you know positive qualities. So. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> so it is, it, it is, it is work, mm. and I think it's handy to think about the creative process in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it means you can you can push through a lot of those potential kind of barriers and boundaries that 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 can come up with. With the creative process, and and I guess with it, with ego, right? You know that that's yeah. you know it can be such a stumbling block if you're if you're looking at things through a through a certain kind of egotistical mindset, right? I mean, you can't have an ego about this because it it continually batters it down. So as well as a re- disappointment game, mm. it's a rejection business, right? So if you're trying to write things, you know you've got to run the gauntlet of trying to get an agent, then you've mm-hmm. got to try mm-hmm. and get an editor. My first novel was rejected. 16 times. Wow. Uh, I think before it was picked up 4 years later. Whoa. Um and you've got to develop a thick skin for that yeah. stuff though it's actually impossible I think to become immune to it. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Um you are getting knocked down and the writers have had many many more rejections than me. I was reading about an author who's I think book just won some kind of book of the year Waterstones thing who was rejected by 96 agents or something like that. Wow. So it's you know, it's that's a common theme amongst yeah. writers. Something we complain about often, but is a part of the part of the game. And um, you know, we're talking here, and I and I generally, well, I do see you now as a as a, a published author of so three books of fiction and now one of non. Yeah, but that's not actually you. You didn't come at it from that sort of more, let's say, kind of traditional route of like I'm going to be a an author of books, right? That's not actually your... Not originally, no, no, because I was from a poor working-class background, a town called Nuneaton in the Midlands, where you weren't really made aware of um, opportunities to work in the creative industries. The idea Mm. of writing a novel Mm. was, you know, quite literally pipe dream. Yeah. You know, which would suggest there was a pipe and that you had somewhere to sleep, and we <laughs> yeah. didn't even have those. So it was a so, but writing I knew was the only thing I could do. When we had creative writing lessons at school, and all the other kids used to go, "No, oh, I don't want to do it." I was like, "This is great. Right. I can do that. This is great, and I'll read it out. This is cool." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, knew that I'd also need to earn money the moment I left school or college or university or entered the world of work. Mm. And the only kind of writing work that made any sense to me or that I was aware of was journalism. So mm-hmm. I studied journalism at university. Mm-hmm. And then moved into magazine journalism, so interviewing people and uh, often, you know, film stars or bands and things like that. Yeah, and writing long form features. But this was this was at a sort of time of you know we're talking what the kind of nineties, noughties, more more noughties sort of lad lad mag times. Yeah, the kind of second wave of lads mag. So when I was fourteen, Loaded magazine came out, and Loaded magazine went on to become synonymous with lads mags. Yeah, but when it in the first few years after it launched, actually wasn't you know had men on the cover and wasn't mm. full of women in their underwear and yeah. ran amazing long form features about you know a couple of blokes trying to canoe down the congo and stuff <laughs> um, with no expertise and it was very funny and the writing was great Mm-mm. and there was lots of adventure in it uh and i remember 
well, I'm told by my mum that I showed her that and said, I want to do that because well, that's writing. Yeah. Uh, I want to work with those guys. That's writing, but that's seeing the world. That doesn't look like work to me. That looks fantastic. <laughs> that magazine was started by a man called James Brown, who eight years later, Loaded had become a different thing and the, the, the industry had changed and men's magazines were full of women in bikinis and stuff. Mm-mm. He was launching a new magazine called Jack, which was trying to kind of counter that, going back to long-form features and interesting articles and interviews and things. Uh, and just as I graduated, they were um, advertising for a staff writer mm. for the magazine and I got the job. You know, he was probably the only person in Britain who would have given me a chance at that point. <laughs> yeah. But I'd written something for my university newspaper thing that made him laugh and I got the job. Wow. So I was working for him and then, you know, it was incredible. And that, that magazine was short-lived. It only lasted a couple of years mm-hmm. before the industry became what it did, Was where sex was the only thing selling at that point and you have the men's weeklies like Nuts and Zoo and, yeah. you know, it just warped and changed. So within a few years, the industry that I'd fallen in love with had kind of spat me out, I think, or I'd, you know, I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. There's only so many times you can interview Abby Titmess about <laughs> what underwear she's wearing yeah, yeah. before you have a massive existential crisis, <laughs> yeah. it turns out. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound like it's got much uh, longevity to it, no. No, it didn't. So I quit. I'd got to do loads of amazing things in that time. I did you know, lots of good interviews with good people and stuff. Mm-hmm. But also the industry was moving in a way that in order to interview Arnold Schwarzenegger mm-hmm. yeah. in a hotel in Atlanta, which I once did, you have to get through a kind of gaunt a corridor a gauntlet of pr people who are telling you what to do and how to promote the film and right, yeah. you know that's not writing that's pr yeah you know it's not journalism and the industry was more and more of that you're dictated to by the advertisers as what you can and can't say about a film yeah i think i interviewed keanu reeves at one point in new york and tried to write down some honest reflections about the experience which you know wasn't tremendously positive <laughs> yeah and yeah. that piece never ran because oh, right, a lot of the magazines yeah. are dependent upon big film studios advertising in them you know so you're up against all those things and that's not what you get into writing for really no that doesn't sound like a very kind of authentic form of writing i mean it's 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 base level reporting i suppose it's Uh, pr it's public relations it's you know you're doing their job for them it's advertising yeah you know i just kind of thought fuck that and i quit i was working at a magazine called maxim at the time Mm -hmm. yeah i remember it yeah yeah and uh (laughs) i worked there for a few years and then i i was doing too much of that kind of stuff and i quit and went freelance but the phone didn't really ring Mm. Um, so I, you know, I shit myself and then uh, had a shower and then <laughs> work for, if I'm not writing every day, I can't call myself a writer, can I? Mm-hmm. So I used what little resources I had to kind of sit and write the first draft of a novel, which became my first one. Mm-hmm. And that's Bed. And this is, when was that, 20... That was a book called Bed, yeah. 11. That, I wrote it in 2007. Right. Oh, yeah, because so this was the book that you got the... Yeah, I wrote it in bed because I had nowhere to go. I had no money, I had no work. I wrote it in bed. So it's <laughs> yeah. about a man who never gets out of bed. And, yeah, um, I mean, it's, it sounds pretty lazy to me, mate. Right, what you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and that was, I got an agent very quickly. Yeah. Um, off the first 5,000 words, which was very lucky. Mm. And at that point, I walked mm. out of her office in swanky central London office. Yeah. You know, spunking my overdraft on <laughs> yeah. champagne. Yeah. Thinking, this is it, this is it. And yeah. then she couldn't sell the book for four years. Wow. Which... I went back into magazines, got a very a job I didn't enjoy at all. Right, right, right. Worked in magazines again for three or four years, just getting very, very depressed with it. And then one day, somebody started an award called To Hell With Publishing, which was for Britain's best unpublished manuscript. So every agent in Britain was able to submit a manuscript yeah. that they hadn't been able to sell. Yeah, yeah. My agent, thankfully, submitted mine, and I won that prize. Ah. And it's a, it's a kind of, it's an industry of, it's a, it's an industry of people who don't want to miss out on anything. So when you mm-hmm. win a prize or you get a bit of attention, mm. like all creative industries, mm. it begets more attention. 
Yes. And it was eventually published by one of the companies that had originally rejected it. Oh, wow, okay, so full yeah. circle. Full circle, yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this before, like, it, it is... I mean, I'm not in it, obviously, but because we we choose to read, because it's a form of entertainment, I suppose. We we maybe feel like we, we can have a sort of strong opinion one way or another on it. But but even within the industry, within the mechanics of the industry itself, you know, you mentioned awards there. You've got awards, uh, such seemingly from the outside, such a sort of powerful, sort of game-changing opportunity for writers who, mm. you know, like you're saying, it's their job. They want to write. It's, it's a passion, but it's a job, right? Yeah. So you want to keep writing more, but you know that you have to kind of buy into the the award thing. But then also, you know, it's it's an industry that, unlike I think many others, I suppose there are other creative industries that that have this. But like the critic is certainly it certainly seems like they used to be. I don't know if they still are now. You can correct mm. me on that. But they seem so central to, you know, whether so, something is a success or not, whether that's kind of commercial or how it's seen creatively or or not. Like, the critic is so involved in the process. Yeah. I mean, that must feel... What, or do you feel like that, that the kind of weight of that when you're writing or when the book comes out? You know, it feels like it, it must be kind of unavoidable. The game is a little rigged, really, because there's so little space given to books in newspapers and magazines and on television right, in a way yeah. that are given to film or video games or music. Um, even though it's a multi-million pound industry, mm-hmm. that you crave the review. Yeah. Um, so there's a degree to which you have to put up with it when when it's a bad one, or even worse, when it's a lukewarm one. I've had plenty of those, <laughs> which is kind of about nothing or just kind of tells you what happens in the book but doesn't impart any kind of yeah. feeling or opinion or emotion Mm-mm. evoked by it. Yeah. But then, yes, you do have to have a thick skin to reviewers. But also, you know, you're not just talking about newspaper critics. When I write a book, mm. it goes on Amazon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any old maniac can <laughs> yeah, totally, mate. write a review totally. on Amazon. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a that's a relatively, you know, modern-day phenomenon, isn't it? Yeah. But I was thinking as well, like, different to other creative industries, I mean, for sure, like, if, you, if you're a musician and you, and you put music out, you don't have generally other musicians... Um, kind of critiquing you through the same art form, <laughs> you know. You yeah. don't get whereas you don't you don't get a, a critic writing a song about your song in order to appraise it. Whereas with with writing, it's another set of writers, similar or different, or you know from whatever yeah. background. But you know, it's this they're they're coming at it from a within the same industry. That 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 must have its effect upon the whole process. It does really as well because authors are reluctant to criticise other authors mm. or most authors are because mm. they're genuine, generally quite nice, well-rounded people as are people who work in publishing it's an extremely, you know, an excessively yeah. nice industry Yeah. so there's an extent to which you, you always kind of, the cynic in me wants to question whether what the author's saying about your book is actually kind of true mm-hmm. but, it, but then that's the not being able to accept praise yeah. part of me. Whichever. I was just about to say, is that is that a little bit of self-doubt that, that maybe... Yeah, that's, self, that's yeah. self-doubt. I mean, you, you know, the most famous author in the world could walk in now and tell me that my book is fantastic. And when they left the room, I'd be convinced that they looked at me a bit shittily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can very much relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think if you... But if you can kind of readily accept that praise... Mm you might even have deeper problems. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, if you take it yeah, yeah, if you if you're trying to if you're looking for that and if you're taking it on board too quickly or too yeah, too deeply. Hmm. 
if it's there to to really bolster you and and kind of push you along, then yeah, I, I would say that's questionable because yeah. where's your where's your your own inner sense of critique and self within that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing is, every bad review I've ever had, which is lots, there's always an element, of, there's a nugget of truth in there. Mm. You know, it might be delivered yeah. by uh, an idiot who is also given five stars to some blue tack. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know... Hey, blue tack plays an important role. Blue tack is, a, is a, you know, <laughs> let's we could talk about that all day, couldn't we? It's an incredible <laughs> thing. But it there is always a kernel of truth in there. Mm, I mean, the only... The only experience I think I've had in my in my time within my working life, at least, um, with with reviews, is when I went on that um, interior design challenge show. I remember it well, my TV show of the year. Yeah, thanks, mate. I was I was the number one <laughs> number one loser of that show, and still am. I'm the reigning number one loser of that show. Was there only one series? Uh, no, no, no. There's like four series now, but nobody can be the first loser, can they? Oh no, you were the first ever loser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You oh, can't well take that away from me. Well done. Yeah, thanks, mate. You're, um, the, you're the Neil Armstrong. Of <laughs> yeah, exactly. Losers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they all come to me now and ask me how I did it. It's like, well, yeah. I can't really tell you. It's my thing. Yeah. But uh, in terms of reviews, um, when the first um, episode came out, um, which was the, the first ever, it, it did get a bit of press. I'm not sure if it still does now, but. Um, uh, I remember really reading just kind of just just for shits and giggles, really, just just going through um, kind of online newspaper articles about it, and there was one classically in the Daily Mail um, with some hilarious comments in there. But I, I'd painted a, a living room pink, and they'd asked us to put our own unique take of, of artwork on the wall, really last minute kind of um, jobby as well. So I made these pink. Arches, which I'd seen in kind of design world, was becoming a bit of a thing. This is like four or five years ago, and they really are now. But um, I painted sort of a darker pink with a with a pink sort of shadow thing on it, and stuck them on the wall, like five of them in a row. And the the best comment was, "He's just stuck a load of dicks on the wall," <laughs> which yeah. you know you can't argue with that. And there was a kernel of truth to it. How did it make you feel? Well, there is truth in that. Yeah. Well. It, it, I mean, immediately my sort of my 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 heart sang. I was like, oh shit! How did I not? Mm. How did I not spot that? But then I very quickly saw the funny side of it because it's. Like, I mean, it's funny. I put a load of dicks on the wall. I regret leaving that comment. <laughs> yes. No, <laughs> it's made me a stronger, better person. So, so I thank you for it. I there do. is always if you can find the. <laughs> In, no, the kernel of truth in the negative review. Mm. Then uh, I think you're better for it. Yeah, really. no, I do, I do, I do genuinely agree. Yeah, because you haven't made something perfect. Because you can't. That's impossible. Yeah. So, well, and also it's that thing of like, I certainly how I saw it with that show, and I'd imagine you found it with articles and specific books and uh, and maybe things that you've tried out and haven't worked. Like, so much of it is to do with the trying, right? You know, if you mm. if you if you don't try things, you you don't. You know, and it sounds a bit. Yeah, wanky, but you don't have that chance to sort of grow and and challenge yourself and figure yourself out a little bit more in the world, which, you know, is kind of all we've got in a way. (laughs) Everyone, you know, the fantasist part of everyone thinks that in creating anything, you're just going to sit down and do it. Mm. I was thinking about this the other day. Everything that takes like a a few hours, like reading a book Mm. or watching a film Mm. or a stand-up set is like an hour long, a good one. Stand, an hour-long stand-up set has mm. taken yeah. a year of honing on the road yeah, 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 every exactly. night in front yeah. of an audience and being mm. shit and then mm. getting better and getting better. Yeah, chipping away, yeah. That's for an hour of, for, to use mm. a crass term, content. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're the hours you put in. 
And what sorts of mm. the wheat from the chef or the men from the boy or the men, the women from the men or, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? The, yeah, yeah. the thing from the thing yeah. is putting that time in mm. and not everyone does it. So though you're crippled with insecurities and anxieties and all these things that... And, and I am. Yeah, I can tell me. <laughs> being, a, <laughs> being a creative freelancer or whatever you want to call it yeah. brings mm. the fact that you're there and doing it mm. is, you know, the victory. Yeah, I think so. Might yeah. not pay the bills. Sure, sure. No, it may not. No, but, but but then you know, there's always there's always ways and means to to pay the bills. You know, as easy as that is for me to say that at this time of year, just you know, recording just before Christmas when everything suddenly shuts down and goes quiet. But mm. but there are yeah, there are always ways, and I do I do feel like if if there is any any element of creativity to to the process that you're working on, some of the writing I do isn't so creative, but. Still, there's a little spark in there. Yeah. If you're focused too, or if I'm anyway focused too much, as maybe I have been recently, on like how how much am I earning from it or other things, it does scupper the process somewhat, and I, and I, and I fear it does probably make it a little bit um, inauthentic. Maybe I can get kind of get away with it because I'm not writing. I'm not writing fiction. I'm not writing in that kind of creative capacity, but. I could, I could certainly see that if 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 one was like you are, you've, I guess you've you've really you've got to be being honest and authentic about it. You can't. It only really works, I think, if you're doing that. I think the reader can smell it. Mm. If it's inauthentic, I think you're not going to be happy with it. Mm-hmm. I think the likelihood of you getting to the end of it is severely diminished. Mm. I remember struggling with my second novel mm-hmm. for ages and ages. Just couldn't make it work. Wrote a version which was kind of mm. shit. Had to can it few times I think it was right. really really bad couldn't make it work at all yeah. and during that process or when I was at my most desperate I did the stupidest thing which was to read a, a book you mm. know not it's not stupid to read a book but it's stupid <laughs> to read a book and then fall so in love with it and the way yeah, it was written right 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 that you try and ape it so then I wrote oh. another half of a novel basically in the style of this other writer a man called Ben Fountain who wrote mm-hmm. a book called <laughs> Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk which I recommend heartily mm-hmm. it's a mm. great book it's great yeah it became a film I haven't seen but the book is great mm and um, and then trying to, you know, very inauthentically mm. ape his I mean, I would style. Be, if I were in your shoes, I would continually be, yeah, wrapping myself up in the fear of like, because I, you know, I love, yeah, I, yeah, I love, I love reading. I, I do love writing. I love, oh, I love design. You know, like, and it's slightly different for me because I'm quite often reporting upon these things or researching about them in order to. to do something with them to sort of deliver as you say content but i would totally be worried that my um that you've nicked it yeah that my that my, my passion for it but then maybe my lack of well maybe it's to do with like talent or maybe that's the self-doubt creeping in but but that just yeah i would i guess in a in a backwards sort of facing way like just try and celebrate that thing that i love by yeah as you say just aping the shit out of it yeah copying it because it's yeah. good and you think I, yeah. want, I want some of that i want to make something that good and yeah inevitably you won't because you're doing that and it will probably fall apart or it certainly yeah. won't sell you know public someone's not going to publish it because it's not you your voice is a, mm. that's often the advice given out on writing courses and things mm-hmm. find your voice mm-hmm which feels like it means nothing. But what I think it actually means is you can only really do something properly one way, and that's the way you're going to do it. Yeah. Does that make sense? So it- Yeah, and, and I'd imagine that means that you're only going to do it 
right, if that's you know, the right thing, the right terminology. But you're only going to do that one way in that one moment as well, right? Because yeah, you change. If you read yeah. read my first book, I don't recognise the person that wrote right. that. Right. Yeah. Because that was 15 years ago that I wrote that. Yeah, of it, course. Well, yeah. I'm a different bloke now. Yeah. Thankfully. Yeah. Thankfully. Well. <laughs> well <actually>. uh, <laughs> Let's talk again in 15 years' time. <laughs> so it's like when you. You know, if you ever go back to your parents or something, you find your embarrassing diaries or homework under your bed. Mm-hmm, yeah. And you read it and you think, oh, fuck, is this idiot? Yeah, yeah. It feels like I that. don't even need to find those things. I'm I'm perpetually plagued by memories of my former self. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I fight those ghosts. <laughs> yeah. I've got those ghosts. Yeah. But you... The the authentic voice, you're right, is is the kind of you now. Mm-mm. Um, and people freak themselves out trying to find that. I think it's... And I understand why, because it can be quite hard. Mm. Well, with, with a book like your, your, so your third book, the long, um, is it the long, long forgotten? The long forgotten. The long yeah. forgotten. I thought it was the lost forgotten for a second. Um, I read that I think this time last year, and I remember. I think I remember saying to you afterwards, but I remember thinking whilst reading it throughout the the sort of the forensic level of of detail of description that you went through of of places and things and people but maybe come mm. to that because i think it's slightly separate but that level of 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 scrutiny and detail i found quite I, I i think i remember saying to you how did you do this specifically around um the the lost flower hunter um yeah. character within it which is a huge you know sort of driving force of the storyline isn't it really because yeah, with no spoilers, but but you know there's a quest involved that involves travelling to these places where these these really remote places that yeah, I mean I'm sort of assuming you haven't been to, but the level of detail and description that you managed to apply that certainly made me feel like I knew how they felt and smell and you know like so yeah how do you kind of is is that is that your voice coming through is that your kind of thing would you say maybe that it's it's to do with that 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 level of detail of description i don't know if it's my voice the job at that point is to because it is a you know it's a big it's a big scale ambitious story goes to places like namibia and the Mm, rainforest in borneo and stuff and none of those places i've been right um (laughs) but the job there is to build a world in which the the reader believes is to be real Mm. and you do that using specifics yeah um you know, if you can get across or hint at what something feels, smells, or, or tastes like, or, or you know, what or looks like, I suppose, and then evoking the character a kind of appropriate and honest emotional response to that thing. Right. Yeah. The whole, f- the world of it feels real and tangible. Yeah, because it's not. Yeah, they're not cold descriptions. No. They, 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 they are. I guess they are very emotive. They, they, they need to be there for a purpose. You can't just go. Mm. You can't just spend a, a week describing a door. Yeah. <laughs> you, you need to know I how could. the character feels. I could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's kind of what we're doing now. Yeah. Um, you need to know how the character feels when he walks through it and what he finds or she finds. Yeah. So it's about making that world real enough for it to alter the character's understanding or desires. Yeah. Um, and then you're doing that over a long form, so of course that makes the world feel expansive and honest and real. But that again, that comes back to that authenticity thing. Honesty, mm. it needs to feel, it needs to have its own internal logic. It can be set on Mars mm. with kind of, you know, clockwork chocolate penguin people. <laughs> this uh, is great. Look, you it, carry on. <laughs> yeah. You buying it? <laughs> but it, as long as the internal logic, yeah, 
follows. As in, so that's to do with the, your, your char- the characters within the plotline, within the story, it's, it's also about how they look at, because we're looking at it through their eyes generally, right? It's, yeah. it's how they emotionally respond to it, which then mirrors back how me, the reader, or the reader yeah. is going to Well, that makes sense. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's how that character feels about these kind of things. Mm. And that needs to run through the entire the entire book and then you build the kind of world around them the is an, an emotional honesty to the characters yeah is the key often if a book doesn't work on something beyond story level or you leave it and you put it down you forget about it and you don't feel anything really from it mm-hmm. it's because of emotional truth i think at the core of the right. writing yeah so the job which inevitably you know which you try and try and inevitably occasionally fail to do mm-hmm. is to create that emotional honesty and when it really works you know, if you nail it, a book is a masterpiece, probably. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you need other things like story and plot. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. But that's what you're striving to do. That's what's hard. Mm. Writing well, isn't hard. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that because the, the other the other key um, takeaway I, I found with reading The Long Forgotten was, was the, the level of depth and, I guess, intimacy and sort of visceral response that I kind of got from the characters. You, you really... I really felt like I was. You, we got under the skin of them, got to really mm. sort of know them. But it strikes me that that in itself, you know, I'm just I'm trying to figure out, you know, myself as a 37 year old adult male man now, like how, like knowing my own emotions, just just the ones I've got, <laughs> you know, like yeah. are you are you kind of continually in your day to day life, you know, like looking out for characters mannerisms you know what ways that people act and say things and and if so should i i and everybody else that knows you be worried <laughs> are we likely to end up in a you know is that how it works are you sort of a bit of a magpie in that respect i don't think consciously but i think when you sit down and you think you know if i'm sitting down tomorrow writing a book and one of my characters is a kind of 37 year old hmm. uh, <laughs> I don't know what you're saying. Englishman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, fine, yeah. You know, you're going to go to those people that you you, yeah. you know and you're going to steal parts of them mm-hmm. and that happens. I mean, that's that's kind of unavoidable. Yeah, well, I, I sort of imagine, again, you know, the the the, the robber in me. <laughs> they must have to, though, right? Because our ability to understand human emotion is is limited to a point right without as in like our own sort of internal truth we we yeah. you have to look to other people to understand the bigger picture there yeah it can't be you know i'm incapable of writing about things that i've had absolutely no experience of mm. you know in terms of emotion yeah rather than place yeah but at the same time you haven't kind of experienced everything you've only experienced everything one way so you do borrow from the thoughts and mm. feelings and dreams and nightmares of your <laughs> friends and family. Yeah. My first book, Bed, the parent characters in that are my parents. Mm. Or, mm. or they're kind of exaggerated version of, versions mm-hmm. of my parents, mm-hmm. which, you know, which is very kind of hard to for them to read, probably. Well, but how consciously you say that now, but we, you know, we're 15 years on, how conscious, was that like, I'm going to write a book that's sort of loosely based on my parents, or it, has that kind of slowly unfolded as you've got older and you look back at it and kind of make those reflections almost almost because you wrote it or was it a deliberate intent to be like yeah they're probably going to feature here in these characters no it wasn't deliberate right but you don't realize the extent of what you've done or what or you don't even realize what you've written about until mm. i think 
a long time after the book is finished or someone else tells you. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what any of those... A lot of people kind of stew for hours, I think, in the creation of anything. Mm. I mean, I definitely... What is this this about? What is this about? And there's an argument that it shouldn't reveal itself or doesn't reveal itself until you've Mm. you've finished it or it's years later. And ultimately, what it turned out, all four of my books have been about is the same thing, which Mm. is the ties that bind parents and children Mm. or family. Mm-mm. Though that hasn't occurred to me at any point during the writing of any of them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you were looking in one direction, and actually you're just doing the you're, thing. You're going off in. I've in got to do this thing, yeah. make this thing as good as possible. Yeah. And really, there's you know there's something in the core of your being. Yeah. Which you revolve around orbit. Yeah. Which you orbit, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And it, and it sounds to me like there is an element of again, I could be being lofty here, but there's an element of sort of self-therapizing through. Through writing, maybe you know, like, are you are you are you managing to challenge, look at, see, you know, things within yourself, within your, you know, our childhood is so, there's such a huge part of the programming that we carry into adulthood that we then yeah. have to break down and Do you know, it. kind of and rebuild and and see for what it is. You know, it does does writing stories, does making up characters, is is that does that help? Does that help in that process? No. But I think, <laughs> okay, I'm not going to start writing then, fine. <laughs> I think it probably does for some writers. I think mm-hmm. depending on who you sit here and talk to, mm-hmm. um, you get very different answers. I think I'm just not um, capable of that level of self-analysis. Right. <laughs> but, <laughs> but maybe that's a good thing. Or maybe, it's just, that I don't, maybe it's just that I don't want to go there, you know? Well, yeah, 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 it could be, yeah. yeah. And also, like, you, I guess you don't know until you write your next book and then the next book after that, you know... It, it, you learn things about yourself having written something yeah. in that you learn something about yourself having made anything, probably, yeah. on some level. Yeah. Um, but consciously, I don't, not for me. No, okay. But then maybe this is an interesting point to sort of uh, talk about, well, pivot the conversation and, and talk about the pivot that you've, that you've made in mm. your last book, your most recent book. Good um, segue, man. Yeah, thanks, thanks man. <laughs> so I used the word pivot twice. Yeah, good. <laughs> Um, but um yeah this is so this is a piece of of non-fiction and it's very much about um the parent-child relationship but it's yeah. i mean it's 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 based upon an incredibly tragic real life well murder i mean crime like yeah that um is is riddled with uh, pain and sadness and well yeah tragedy um yes uh was so I wasn't looking to start writing non-fiction or any of that but I was between books or projects I couldn't really make anything work for a while fiction wise Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then one day I was contacted by uh, a man named Colin Hare who is from Nuneaton like I am and whose Colin's son Morgan was murdered in 2015 he was stabbed to death by strangers Mm. one night and um, after Morgan's murder Colin did something extraordinary which is to keep a diary of events which chronicled mm. not just kind of the immediacy of his grief and his family's grief but also the trial of his son's killers and then Colin's subsequent lengthy and very difficult Mm-mm. pursuit of the truth which was that the police were culpable for Morgan's murder mm. um he'd kept a diary of that over those over that four-year period that's amazing yeah it is absolutely incredible yeah that he had the foresight to do that um but he did it and kind of wanted some advice on what to do with it, really. Mm-hmm. And I got it to me because I'd written some books before and they'd come out. Um, but 
you know, who am I to tell a man what to do with his grief and pain? The document was extraordinary, yeah. but sad, yeah. baffling, mm. crazy, mm. beautiful, combination of all those things. Mm. Um, but, I, you know, it's not for me to tell him what to do with it. So I kind of avoided the conversation for a while. Mm. But he got back in touch and I read it again. And it just struck me that there might be a way of approaching it creatively to make a work of creative, long-form creative non-fiction mm. book to tell Morgan's story, but also the story of his family and, and that time. So it's not, a, it's not a, though the book centres around a crime, it's not a true crime book, it's about the aftermath of a, right, of a terrible yeah. thing. Yeah, and from, I haven't read the book yet, but I've read parts of it and read a, a lot of the reviews. Um, obviously, we've, we, we've talked about it, you know, in the process of you getting it out, but um, it strikes me as a very, it's got a very different feel and I guess a very different sort of motive um there but but one of the one of the 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 key um devices that you use within it and one of the big big things that sort of strikes me about it is that you you chose to to write it in the second person yeah which is quite that's I mean even for my relatively limited knowledge of sort of of writing that's quite that's quite rare isn't it you don't tend it's unusual particularly for I think uh, non-fiction. Mm. There's an amazing book called uh, "You Could Do Something Amazing with Your Life." You are Raoul Moat by um, wow. by by a man called Andrew Hankinson, which uh-huh. is a brilliant book written in the second person about Raoul Moat. Who... And and the and the second person allows you to do as that title suggests. It allows you to do that. You, you're, yeah, you're that's, addressing that's what it is. You're you're you. addressing the subject. Yeah, um, yeah. But that then enabled me to. It's written to the you, as in you are Colin, you're Morgan's dad. Yeah, you, yeah. You know, there's a knock at your door, your son has been murdered. Mm. Enables you to make best use of what the gift that Colin had given me, which is mm. his innermost thoughts and feelings and mm. deepest kind of... Um, deep, well, deepest thoughts and feelings about his son's mm. death. And put everyone in the shoes that no-one wants to be in, which is the father yeah. of... the parent of a murdered child, a parent yeah. of a dead child. Um, but it also enabled me to then zoom out and, mm-hmm. you know, exploit what was unique about the situation was that that was my hometown. Mm-hmm. I used to, I left in 1999. I didn't, I never met Morgan. I didn't know Colin until this began. Mm-hmm. You know, I left 16 years before the murder, but I used to walk past the spot where he was murdered every day on my way to college. And, um, you know, the town, I know the town and the people and the, the culture and the climate. Mm-hmm. I understand what male violence looks like there because I was yeah. a young man there. Yeah underage drinking in pubs and things. <laughs> yeah, and it's I a rough that town. my own hometown, yeah. 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 So the second person voice allowed me to use all of that mm. and to make the reader question, okay, so the you in the book is Colin, mm. there is a knock at your door, mm-hmm. but who is saying that to him? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Know, and, it, and change at points, kind of sometimes imperceptibly, mm-hmm. who that person is or might be. Yeah, sure, yeah. You can do lots with it that I hadn't really... Yeah appreciated before yeah and i wonder as well i mean this might just be me projecting onto it but but did that because you know you're you're a father yourself like this is it's, it's i'm, an, I'm your father <laughs> 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 thank thank god you're not <laughs> um, it's an incredibly um yeah i mean powerful and emotive story is and you know tragedy is, is is it almost doesn't you know kind of cover it yeah um, so with that, um, I can only imagine that, that, that your role within that is, is fraught with uh, sort of um, the peril of, uh, yes, getting it kind of the worry of getting it wrong. But with that, you know, like the emotional grief surely is going to bleed through into your own 
mindset some of the time. So I wonder, was 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 consciously or not the second person tactic? Was that maybe a way to sort of create that buffer for you as well as a sort of protection of your emotions? Um, I don't know. Maybe because it remained very intimate. Mm. You know, to write it in the third person would have been the way to completely remove myself, and it, that would make it a more conventional crime yeah. book, true yeah. crime book, I suppose, yeah. and which had no interest in doing. Yeah, to write it in the first person would have been to. Uh, you know, it's not my story to tell in that way. It's Colin's story to tell in that way, and he could have done that if he wanted to. Mm. Um, the second person remain, remained intimate. It wasn't kind of about me removing myself. It was just how best could I tell this story. But there's an enormous sense of responsibility because you're handling this terrible, yeah, the terrible truths of this family's mm. recent past, and there's a there's a burden there of responsibility and care that comes with that. Because mm. I knew at the end of it, once Colin, in a radical act of trust, said yes, go away and. Yeah. write whatever you want he gave me his diary and said do it however you like and wow, then yeah so I spent a year interviewing him and but also writing and stuff yeah and then I remember the most nervous I've ever been was taking the I printed it out at the end that first draft yeah took it to his house and was so scared of giving it to him because it felt like delivering a grenade or something <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. highly emotive yeah account of their inner lives yeah well it's like a it's a big fat mirror back and a time traveling mirror yeah exactly know, of, the, of, a, yeah. of an extremely sad time mm, mm. um and i just sat on his couch for six hours unable to get it out of my bag my hands shaking and stuff eventually oh, i did man. it and yeah. he got back to me after the weekend and just you know gave me his blessing thankfully yeah 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 but it there is a huge responsibility that comes with that which i, f- I felt that every day mm. rather than the you know how it made me feel in terms because that's all relative there mm-hmm. is nothing anywhere close to way of making me feel that writing that book could in any way mm. reflect the experience of the hair family and what they went through yeah of course Do you know what i mean yeah, there's, no, yeah. there's no there's no parallels yeah there's a real leveler there isn't there yeah it's yeah. a real leveler yeah. and also in unlike most books which you sit and write on your own out of this book came a friendship which is mine with the with colin and his mm. fat and his wife and his you know his family yeah which kind of easily overshadows um any of the difficult days i had writing it because it was very sad which it was yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um but it, in the end it was a tremendously rewarding experience yeah. rather than a traumatic one yeah so, so yeah i mean it's it's it was literally generating creating very deep, very personal connections with people, right? Which, as you say, you know, like, I, I get this with very, very different sort of writing. But, uh, and I think a lot of creative people do get this. Is that it's quite often quite solitary. You're quite often yeah. on your own, having to sort of, you know, crack on and close off the, uh, well, distractions, many of which are self-doubt creeping in. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'd imagine that would be quite... A, yeah, kind of cathartic experience. But then you 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 also um, I mean not wanting to move away from the book necessarily, but um you know, knowing you, having having chats with you about work out you know, here in the studio, like you're you're now quite regularly on like writing teams, right? Like generally comedy writing teams, am I right? For sort of T V and Yeah, I've been in uh in a, well, yeah, do a bit of script writing with yeah. uh with other people. I've been in writers' rooms and things like that. And you yeah. did crave but I crave kind of meetings. Like if you offer me a meeting in in, in um, you know, in Benidorm, I will go. <laughs> well, why not? Why yeah, would you go to Benidorm? Yeah, exactly. We should go Benidorm after well, this. That was the only place I could think of. I was, <laughs> the, the example would have worked better if I said somewhere really kind of horrible. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, you, I crave human interaction. That's mm-hmm. part of the creative thing as well. Because you do feel like if you work I in a silo, yeah, you feel like you're going mad. Is this thing any good? Yeah. What am I doing? Do I exist? Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, questions yeah. I ask myself on a daily basis. Yeah, <laughs> you do. <laughs> I can see you now. You exist. Doesn't mean anything. No. It's all <laughs> no, about perception. <laughs> but it can feel like that, mm. which is why podcasts mm. about the making of stuff mm. <laughs> is a useful thing because it oh, stops yeah, you I feel like so. it stops you feel like you're going mad. Mm. Like I watched um, Get Back, the Beatles documentary. Yeah. yeah. And to see those four blokes sitting around, like, obviously they went on to write, you know, yesterday or whatever they were doing. Get yeah, they did, the song they did get all back right. And they, they did yeah, all right. Yeah. But, you know, but they've already done a lot of it by that point. But there are hours and hours of that in which they're just sitting there going, dum, dum, <laughs> nothing's working and they're just throwing in silpid lyrics. Like, yeah. Just say Cauliflower George. <laughs> yeah. And if, oh, that's the creative process. Yeah. You, when you mm. see other people doing it, mm. you feel less alone. Yeah. Less anxious, yeah, less, yeah. you know, and, and that applies to songwriting or I think any medium, any creative medium. Mm. It can make you feel like you're going mad. Mm. That's why it's, you know, it's nicer to be in the Beatles than it is to be um, very man alone, <laughs> I'm going to say. <laughs> Present tense Jim here again. And thanks to David Whitehouse for taking double the amount of time to talk to me about making his work as a writer. I feel like his honest appraisal of the rejection business that is writing and releasing books may have put me off the idea forever. But I am inspired by his persistence and aptitude to keep going, to keep believing in himself and the creative process. I also feel there's a lot to take from the idea of taking yourself out of your comfort zone, something that, I guess in all honesty, I'm, I'm trying to do with this podcast. But as Dave explained, in making the decision to write about a son, he put himself in a new and uncomfortable position, and one loaded with emotion. He not only risked commercial failure, but also letting down or actually failing Colin and his family. And yet, not only did that pay off in the penning of a wonderful book, but it also allowed for a new and unexpected friendship to grow and develop. And I think there's something incredibly humbling about that. Now, do go out and buy some of Dave's books. There are four to choose from. Although, I am confident he will carry on with the job of writing because, well, that's what he does anyway. On that note, I'd just like to clarify my comments around making money and money always coming along because I don't want to be reductive about that, particularly not during these strange and uncertain times. Because in reality, as a creative freelance myself, I do have times of financial instability and worry. And actually, I was almost surprised to hearing that comment when listening back. But I think, or maybe hope, it shows a signal change in my own mindset, which is something that I've been working on. Because on the one hand, I really don't want to have it continually niggle at me. And on the other, I also want to understand and really feel a value in myself and what I can do. To know that I can keep putting myself out there, to keep risking failure, and to be adaptable, whilst hopefully enjoying the work that I do whether that's making or otherwise. Now, if you don't mind, I'm off, because Dave has given me the coordinates to his magic money pipe. I will leave you with the final wise words from writer David Whitehouse. You must reveal your sausage. (laughs) 